First part of chapter four of the second volume of the Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Erin Fisher. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter four. The Aristocratic Ideal, part one. To him that hath shall be given, says the gospel, representing as a principle of divine justice one that undoubtedly holds in earthly economy. A not dissimilar observation is made in the proverb, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Indeed, some trifling acquisition often gives an animal an initial advantage, which may easily roll up and increase prodigiously, becoming the basis of prolonged good fortune. Sometimes this initial advantage is a matter of natural structure, like talent, strength, or goodness. Sometimes an accidental accretion, like breeding instruction or wealth such advantages grow by the opportunities they make and it is possible for a man launched into the world at the right moment with the right equipment to mount easily from eminence to eminence and accomplish very great things without doing more than genially follow his instincts and respond with ardor like an alexander or a shakespeare to his opportunities a great endowment doubled by great good fortune raises men like these into supreme representatives of mankind. Its cause is natural and its privilege is just. It is no loss of liberty to subordinate ourselves to a natural leader. On the contrary, we thereby seize an opportunity to exercise our freedom, availing ourselves of the best instrument obtainable to accomplish our ends. A man may be a natural either by his character or by his position. The advantage a man draws in that peculiar structure of his brain which renders him, for instance, a ready speaker or an ingenious mathematician, are by common consent regarded as legitimate advantages. The public will use and reward such ability without jealousy and with positive delight. In an unsophisticated age, the same feeling prevails in regard to those advantages which a man may draw from more external circumstances. If a traveler, having been shipwrecked in some expedition, should learn the secrets of an unknown land, its arts and resources, his fellow citizens on his return, would not hesitate to follow his direction in respect to those novel matters. It would be senseless folly on their part to begrudge him his advantageous eminence and refuse to esteem him of more consequence than their uninitiated selves. Yet when people, ignoring the natural causes of all that is called artificial, think that but for an unlucky chance they too might have enjoyed the advantages, which raise other men above them, they sometimes affect not to recognize actual distinctions and abilities, or study enviously the means of annulling them. So long, however, as by the operation of any causes whatsoever, some real competence occurs to anyone. It is for the general interest that this competence should bear its natural fruits, diversifying the face of society, and giving its possessor a corresponding distinction. Advantage of inequality. Variety in the world is an unmixed blessing so long as each distinct function can be exercised without hindrance to any other. There is no greater stupidity or meanness than to take uniformity for an ideal, as if it were not a benefit and a joy to a man, being what he is, to know that many are, have been, and will be better than he. Grant that no one is positively degraded by the great man's greatness, and it follows that everyone is exalted by it. Beauty, genius, holiness, even power, and extraordinary wealth radiate their virtue and make the world in which they exist a better and more joyful place to live in. 
Hence the insatiable vulgar curiosity about great people, and the strange way in which they desire for the fame, by which the distinguished man sinks to the common level, is met and satisfied by the universal interest in whatever is extraordinary. This avidity, not to miss knowledge of things notable, and to enact vicariously all singular roles, shows the need men have of distinction, and the advantage they find even in conceiving it. For it is the presence of variety and a nearer approach sometimes to just and ideal achievement that gives men perspective in their judgments and opens vistas from the dull foreground of the lives of sea, mountain, and stars. No merely idle curiosity shows itself in this instinct, rather a mark of human potentiality that recognizes in what is yet attained a sad caricature of what is essentially attainable. For man's spirit is intellectual and naturally demands dominion in science. It craves in all things friendliness and beauty. The least hint of attainment in these directions fills it with a satisfaction and the sense of realized expectation, so much so that when no inkling of a supreme fulfillment is found in the world or in the heart, men still cling to the notion of it in God or the hope of it in heaven and religion. When it entertains them with that ideal, seems to have reached its highest height. Love of uniformity would quench the thirst for new outlets, for perfect, even if alien achievements in this, so long as perfection, had not been actually attained, would indicate a mind dead to the ideal. Menenius Agrippa expressed very well the aristocratic theory of society when he compared the state to a human body in which the common people were the hands and feet, the nobles the belly. The people, when they forgot the conditions of their own well-being, might accuse themselves of folly and the nobles of insolent idleness. For the poor spent their lives in hopeless labor, that others who did nothing might enjoy all. But there was a secret circulation of substance in the body politic, and the focusing of all benefits in the few was the cause of nutrition and prosperity of the many. Perhaps the truth might be even better expressed in a psychological figure, somewhat more modern, by saying that the brain which consumes much blood well repays its obligations to the stomach and members, for it coordinates their motions and prepares their satisfactions. Yet there is this important difference between the human body and the state, a difference which renders Agrippa's fable wholly misleading. The hands and feet have no separate consciousness, and if they are ill-used, it is the common self that feels the weariness and the bruises. But in the state, the various members have a separate sensibility, and although their ultimate interests lie, no doubt, in cooperation and justice, their immediate instinct and passion may lead them to oppress one another perpetually. At one time the brain, forgetting the members, may feast on opiates and unceasing music, and again the members, thinking they can more economically shift for themselves, may starve the brain and reduce the body politic to a colony of vegetating microbes. In a word, the consciousness inhabiting the brain embodies the functions of all the body's organs and responds in a general way to all their changes of fortune. But in the state, every cell has a separate brain, and the greatest citizen, by his existence, realizes only his own happiness. Theism expresses better the aristocratic ideal. For an ideal aristocracy, we shall look not to Plato's Republic, for that utopia is avowedly the ideal only for fallen and corrupt societies, since luxury and injustice, we are told, first necessitated war. 
and the guiding idea of all the Platonic regimen is military efficiency. Aristocracy finds a more ideal expression in theism, for theism imagines the values of existence to be divided into two unequal parts. On the one hand, the infinite values of God's life. On the other, the finite values of all the created hierarchy. According to theistic cosmology, there was a metaphysical necessity if creatures were to exist at all, then they should be in some measure inferior to God hand, otherwise they would have been indistinguishable from the God hand itself, according to the principle called the identity of indiscernibles, which declares that two beings exactly alike cannot exist without collapsing into an undivided unit. The propagation of life involved then declension from pure vitality, and to diffuse being meant to dilute it with nothingness. This declaration might take place in infinite degrees, each retaining some vestige of perfection mixed as it was, with a greater and greater proportion of impotence and non-entity. Below God stood the angels, below them man, and below man in brute and inanimate creation. Each sphere as it receded contained a paler adumbration of the central perfection. Yet even at the last confines of existence, some feeble echo of divinity would still resound. This inequality and dignity would be not only a beauty in the whole, to whose existence and order such inequalities would be essential, but also no evil to the creature and no injustice. For a modicum of good is not made evil simply because a greater good is elsewhere possible. On the contrary, by accepting that appointed place and that specific happiness, each servant of the universal harmony could feel its infinite value and could thrill the more profoundly to a music which he helped to intone. A heaven with many mansions. Dante has expressed this thought with great simplicity and beauty. He asks a friend's spirit, which he finds lodged in the lowest circle of paradise, if a desire to mount higher does not sometimes visit him. And the spirit replies, Brother, the force of charity quiets our will, making us wish only for what we have and thirst for nothing more. If we desired to be in a sublimer sphere, our desires would be discordant with the will of him here allotes us our diversations, something which you will see there is no room for in these circles, if to dwell in charity be needful here, and if ye consider duly the nature of charity. For it belongs to the essence of the blessed state to keep within the divine purposes, that our own purposes may become one also. Thus the manner in which we are arranged from step to step in this kingdom pleases the whole kingdom, as it does the king who gives us will to will with him. And his will is our peace. It is that seed towards which all things move, that his will creates and that nature fashions. If God is defined as the human ideal, apotheosis, the only paradise. Such pious resignation has in it something pathetic and constrained, which Dante could not nor would not disguise, for a theism which, like Aristotle's and Dante's, has a Platonic essence. God is really nothing but the goal of human aspiration, embodied imaginatively. This fact makes these philosophers feel that whatever falls short of divinity is something imperfect about it. God is what man ought to be, and man, while he is still himself, must yearn forever like Aristotle's cosmos, making in his perpetual round a vain imitation of deity and an internal prayer. Hence a latent minor strain in Aristotle's philosophy, the hopeless note of paganism, and in Dante an undertone of sorrow and sacrifice inseparable from Christian feeling. In both, virtue implies a certain sense of defeat, 
a fatal unnatural limitation as if a pristine ideal had been surrounded and what remained were at best a compromise accordingly we need not be surprised if aspiration in all these men finally takes a mystical turn and dante's ghostly friends after pronouncing their aristocratic philosophy to justify god in other men's eyes are themselves on the point of quitting the lower sphere to which god had assigned them and plunging into the sea of his absolute ecstasy for if the word God stands for man's spiritual ideal, heaven can consist only in hypothesis. This the Greeks know very well. They instinctively ignored or feared any immortality, which fell short of defecation. And the Christian mystics reached for the same goal by less overt courses. They merged the popularity of a personal God in their foretaste of peace and perfection. And their whole religion was an effort to escape humanity. When natures differ, perfections differ too. It is true that the theistic cosmology might hear a different interpretation. If by deity we mean not a man's ideal, intellectual or sensuous, but the total cosmic order, then the universal hierarchy may be understood naturalistically, so that each fear gives scope for one sort of good. God, or the higher being, would then be simply the life of nature as a whole, if nature has a conscious life, or that of its noblest portion. The supposed metaphysical evil involved in finitude would then be no evil at all, but the condition of every good. In realizing his own will in his own way, each creature would be perfectly happy, without yearning or pathetic regrets for other forms of being. Such forms of being would all be unpalatable to him, even if conventionally called higher because their body was larger and their soul more complex. Not would divine perfection itself in any sense perfection, unless it gave expression to some definite nature, the entelechy either of the celestial spheres, or of scientific thought, or of some other actual existence. Under these circumstances, inhabitants even of the lowest heaven would be unreservedly happy, as happy in their way as those of the seventh heaven could be in theirs. No pathetic note would any longer disquiet their finitude. They would not have to renounce in sad conformity to an alien will what even for them would have been a deeper joy. That would be asked to announce nothing but what for them would be an evil. The overrooting providence would then in truth be fatherly, by providing for each that which it inwardly craved. Persons of one rank would not be improved by passing into the so-called higher sphere, any more than an ox would be improved by being transformed into a lark or a king or into a poet. Man in such a system could no more pine to be God than he could pine to be the law of gravity or Spinoza's substance or Hegel's dialectic idea. Such naturalistic abstractions, while they perhaps express some element of reality or its total form, are not objects corresponding to man's purpose and are morally inferior to his humanity. Every man's ideal lies within the potentialities of his nature, for only by expressing his nature can ideals possess authority or attraction over him. Heaven, accordingly, has really many mansions, each truly heavenly to him who would inhabit it, and there is really no room for discord in these rounds. One ideal can no more conflict with another than truth can jostle truth, but men or the disorganized function within a given individual may be in physical conflict as opinion may wrestle with opinion in the world's arena or in an ignorant brain among ideals themselves infinite variety is consistent with perfect harmony the matter that has not yet developed or discovered its organic affinities may well show groping and contractory tendencies 
When, however, these embryotic disorders are once righted, each possible life knows its natural paradise. And what some unintelligent outsider might say, in dispraise of that ideal, will never wound or raffle the self-justified creature whose ideal it is, any more than a cat's aversion to water will disturb a fish's plan of life. End of chapter 4, part 1.